Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Sebastian Kaplan, and I'm based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, USA. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Glenn Hines from Derry, Northern Ireland. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Sebastian. Hello, Seb. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Okay, here, you know, summer's winding down, school started for the kids. So, you know, definitely very much a transitional time of year here. So, yeah, before we get into our episode, though, Glenn, maybe uh, share with everyone how they can contact us and, and our social media accounts and such. Of course, as always, our, our Twitter account is at Change Talking. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Facebook is Talking to Change. And for questions, queries, feedback, uh, uh, queries about training, it's our email is podcast at glennhines.com. Great. Thank you for that. Well, so today's conversation was with Molly McGill, uh, an associate professor at Brown University uh, in the state of Rhode Island here in the U.S. And this is another one of our episodes that we call Lessons from the Lab, which is uh, an effort to invite a researcher on to discuss their work and to discuss some of the things that they've discovered about motivational interviewing that could ultimately help all the practitioners out there that are listening. And we found it to be a, a really interesting conversation, exploring a lot of different aspects of, of Molly and her work. And uh, Glenn, what, what about you? What stood out in our conversation? Well, as you would imagine, there's an awful lot uh, talking to a researcher and, and the things that, that Molly described were, are, are definitely going to capture a lot of people's attention today. But one of the things that really stood out for me was just how open Molly was and how accessible she made these uh, what could be quite complex processes that she describes ab about what's behind the curtain of effective motivational interviewing. Um, just the way she was able to translate and to describe a lot of what what it is she's discovered into an accessible accessible language, and that made the, you know it really made the, the conversation so much more enjoyable and allowed us to dig deep into the what it was she was describing. So it was I enjoyed that? Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, uh, you know, there, there's this sort of methodical way that researchers think and and many speak too, but it was methodical in, in a very accessible way. Again, to use that word, Glenn, I, I, um, I think people will really enjoy it and, and, you know, no, not a ton of fancy stats or effect sizes or this and that, just, just really clear ideas, conclusions that she's drawn and, and ideas for how to go forward. So it was, um, it was great to listen to. One of the things that was, uh, that, that, kind of stayed with me after our, our, you know, that, that has stayed with me, I should say, was uh, she, she offered this kind of summary of what we've learned about MI in a really simple, again, accessible way. And she talked about the three gifts of MI. She talked about being nice, being present, and that in all this work on MI, we've learned a lot about how to train therapists. Mm. And, um, I don't know, it just, it was just one of those moments. Steve Rolnick will talk about this a lot about being, you know, simplifying things, removing jargon. And this seems like one of the best examples that I've heard of it, of, of just these, these gifts that MI has offered, yeah. you know, the importance of yeah. being nice and being present and how to train therapists. Yeah. And it is simple on the surface of it. And, and what's great is Molly is on to explain a wee bit more about how we go about being nice and how we go mm -hmm. about you know, being present and, uh, and, and I think that's what, what most of us are interested in is how do we go about making this happen? So 
Um, I'm sure lots of people will, will take lots from today. That's right. Well, enjoy the episode, everyone. Hello, Molly. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, we'll, we'll start as we often do, just to hear a little bit about your background and your early MI story. Well, first of all, Glenn and Seb, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. I um, honor and appreciate the opportunity to be able to talk to people about my work and about motivational viewing in particular and kind of what I see as the gifts that it has given to the field. Um, I'm an associate professor of behavioral and social sciences at Brown University. I'm in the School of Public Health. I'm also in a research center, the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies. So my research is focused on alcohol and other substance use disorders. Another piece of my research really is, or a central piece of my research really is around behavioral treatments for addiction and how those treatments work. So really kind of you know, opening up the hood and tinkering around with the mechanics and doing the very best that we can uh, to understand how behavioral therapies produce their effects, which is not easy, but we'll get into that. <laughs> and so that's, you know, kind of a, a quick story on my scientific background, but you wanted to hear about my, my motivational interviewing background or my early MI story. So uh, I'm trained in social work and as a master of social work student, or I think any clinician in training, there is this feeling of just like feeling entirely out of control and, you know, overwhelmed by the prospect of helping another human being and doing it right versus doing it wrong. And so for me, that translated to this very early gravitation toward evidence-based practice. And I did a lot of uh, my own personal research around what those models look like. So I looked at evidence-based medicine. I looked at uh, empirically supported treatments. So the sort of American Psychological Association's um, efforts to validate specific therapies for specific uh, psychiatric conditions. And I started really digging into treatment manuals and I looked at and being in an addiction clinic for my internship, I um, was looking at three manuals from a research study called Project Match. Project Match was a very large scale research study in the United States. Um, it had three specific therapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, 12 step facilitation, which is a facilitation of Alcoholics Anonymous attendance and motivational enhancement therapy, which is a four session version of motivational interviewing. And I would just sit there and like read manuals before clients walked in the door and then try it out. Right. And, and I, do and do not recommend this as a training approach, as a self-training approach. And we could talk about the, the pros and cons, but I know that when I, I learned relatively soon that when I was stuck with a client, I could switch to what was my motivational enhancement therapy methods and I could get the session moving again. And I didn't, I think I did understand what was happening, which was that when I was trying out that cognitive behavioral therapy manual, I was very in my head and very much like trying to think about the specific content that needed to be covered. Uh, you know, the relevance of that content to the person sitting in front of me was another story. I mean, you know, it was hopefully relevant, but I guess what I'm saying is that there was this, this importance being placed on the materials of the intervention as opposed to the needs of the person sitting in front of me. And, you know, I interfaced the two, but I'm being honest with myself here. Um, when I switched to motivational enhancement therapy, all I did was reflect All that meant was reflective listening. And it meant orienting myself very closely to exactly what the person said and to adjust my responses accordingly. And then things would just, I would just have surprises. So as opposed to um, maybe feeling like I was kind of hitting my head against the wall a little bit, um, 
things would be moving and they would say things actually that I hadn't thought of. And so this, you know, it's kind of an amazing thing. I mean, I thought a lot about this and I'll, I'll, I'll stop <laughs> soon explaining it, but you know, just this idea of particularly for early stage therapists that the way that we deliver therapy can be very much about our needs, our needs to feel helpful our needs to feel in control, our needs to, you know, just kind of have a semblance of, of, of understanding of, of, you know, where to go next. And motivational interviewing trains us to really, it trains us to be about the client's needs. Mm. That's my, that's my early MI story. And that was really what, you know, showed me that, that MI is something that you can, you know, that you can incorporate broadly, but is also something that you can step into from moment to moment when, when you're, when things are feeling stuck. Wow. So you, you know, there's a lot of integrity in what you're describing there, uh, Molly, and that, that for you as a new social worker, you were conscious of yourself and, and that comes across still that, you know, you've got great awareness of the experience of, of your own process uh, in, in what's happening in you and around you. And it sounds like what was important for you is that you wanted to practice to the best of your ability and you became curious, you know, what, what works, what works? And you went, you went looking for the evidence, you went looking for the research and, and you started to read, read the manuals and that you practiced until it's something clicked for you. And for you, it was the, the shift that happened when you moved away from that head process of almost like I was hearing saying that by being in your head, you were always just slightly ahead of where the client was trying to make interpretations perhaps. But when you moved into the MET, the motivational enhancement therapy, what you did was endeavor to simply come alongside and uh, orientate towards yourself, towards what the client was saying and, and things changed. And that that's what was important for you. And I guess at building on that then what was it that you that you were noticing or what is it that you have noticed since about what is it that, that's going on in motivation interviewing that allows the client to make those shifts that seem different from the other approaches i think that there are a lot of things right but you know very first and foremost being listened to and being heard rather than being talked at. And, you know, that's revolutionary, right? I've, I've, you know, I, I teach MI to Masters of Social Work students and um, I show, you know, a certain video and, and uh, the, the, the interviewer said to Bill Miller, uh, your revolutionary approach. And, and Bill Miller said, well, I don't know if it's revolutionary. And it is very much revolutionary. Uh, in terms of addiction treatment, for sure, but in terms of how we understand how to help people. And, you know, it means the difference between orienting toward the resources. And, you know, maybe this is like partly the way I was trained, right? We're all influenced by how we were trained. But you can certainly think of plenty of schools of thought or plenty of disciplines that are very much oriented toward providing an answer um, with probably with a very complex framework that informs that answer. And so, you know, that direction of kind of instilling versus evoking is, yeah, revolutionary. And I think it, it feels different to people. It feels different to people because a lot of people, particularly those with substance use disorders, uh, but I can also think about like medical patients. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that are used to being talked at and told um, what they think, what they feel, why they think, why they feel. And this is not to say that those are terrible, terrible things that you should never do. Um, it's really more about um, being able to move in and out of that according to what the person is responding to and what you perceive that they are needing in the moment. Um, I know, for example, um, 
my father passed away from uh, from it was complications from a, from cirrhosis of the liver from from drinking. Uh, but he ended up dying of cancer because his anti-rejection drug uh, gave him cancer. And he actually lived for like 12, no, like 20 years with a liver transplant, which is amazing. But I, when I sat in the, in, the, uh, in the hospital with him for a long time in those final days or those final years, actually, he had one physician who was doing like super clumsy motivational interviewing with him. And so, you know, clearly this, this resident had been taught uh, client-centered communication with, you know, or patient, say patient-centered communication and, um, and, you know, was using open-ended questions and engaging in, in some simple reflections. And my father was like, ha, 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 and, you know, really wanted to be told what to do and really wanted to be told exactly what was going on in a very simple and straightforward manner. And so point being, there's, there's clearly a place for that. Right. But yeah, so so there's a, a long-winded roundabout answer to your question, um, which actually I would just say is like part A. <laughs> it's like, you know, just the experience of being listened to and the experience of being guided in an in an exploration um that is so this is probably part B, uh guided in an exploration um that you know can happen in our heads. Um, but is not necessarily might not be directed in the same way or guided in the same way, uh, but is also verbalized, right? So the difference between a verbalized exploration versus, uh, you know, your own, you know, sitting with your thoughts, gazing out at the sea or staring down at the concrete and, you know, mulling over your life and your circumstances and where you might need to go. Mm-hmm. So that's A and B and I'll, I could keep going, but I, I, I have a, I have a question about, <clears throat> something that you had said earlier about about the the manuals and the pros and cons of it, but I just wanted to respond to the that touching uh, personal story and thank you for sharing that. It, and it 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 struck me that you know when you were doing the cognitive behavioral work and you were talking about being in your head and not quite where the the you know the client was at until you shifted to the more MI approach. That that resident who was working with with you and your father that I guess there's a risk in being in your head, even when we're doing MI and that we could kind of rigidly adhere to the idea that something's patient centered and we're going to reflect and reflect and reflect, but we might miss that someone actually wants information and maybe even to go so far as to say, they kind of want to be told what to do and we can do that in an MI centric way. But if we're, if we're rigidly adhering to the, to evoking, for instance, that that's all we're going to do. Well, then we're going to kind of miss the boat also. So I guess that's a, a takeaway from, from that, but I'm so I'm happy to have you respond to that more, but, um, well, the but only I, am, thing I would say br- yeah. very briefly is just yeah. that MI does give us wonderful strategies for providing, uh, yep. information in a, in a client centered and empowering way that, and, and that is, I love that so much. We could talk about that later, but like just client centered information giving is, is another amazing gift for motivational interviewing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think Steve Rolnick in the last few years has has sort of been uh, championing advice giving and like, where did that go? You know, we we can still give people ideas and share our, our expertise and what we know and we can do it in an MI centric way. Um, But my question was, was, was actually going back to the, I guess, well, you use the word revolutionary uh, and, and how it's been, how MI is described. I would say for a, a, a therapist, for a, a therapy student of some kind to, to sit and peruse therapy manuals on their own would, is kind of revolutionary too. I, I, most of the therapists that I know um, kind of cringe at therapy manuals. And maybe that's just in the small sample size of, of people that I've worked in so, uh, or worked with. And so I'm, I'm quite curious to hear a little bit more about your curiosity about therapy manuals. And you had mentioned about there's being a pros and cons and in, in doing that kind of exploration. So I'd love to hear more about that. It's interesting. So, so I went to college as an, as an adult. Um, I was still young. I was 27, but I didn't go at 18. 
right? And so that makes for a different clinician and training. I didn't have really a clinical background, but I had an addiction background and I had experience with frontline community-based rehabilitation. So I knew a lot going into it. And I had this odd idea or not quite sure. It was when I very early on in my undergraduate studies, I, I, I came across dialectical behavior therapy and I was like, well, this is just behavior therapy added to mindfulness and like, I can do that. <laughs> so like this idea, there was, there's something about like the mechanics of things that I must gravitate towards. And, and I, so I was, was always just even, you know, in undergrad, just very interested in like the theories of therapy and how that related to the different elements of therapies. And, you know, I don't know. And then I, and then I just had this idea that I was going to come up with an integrative therapy, which I, you know, sort of am still continuing to move in that direction, which is kind of curious um, or I think very cool actually that, you know, this thing that I was interested in as a, as like a big, an undergraduate student is still something that I pursue to this day. But so, so there's something about just the intellectual fascination with therapy and it's different styles, but there was also something about a feeling of control, you know, and, and just wanting like a framework around me that could make me feel like I was doing it right because I just wanted to do it right. I didn't want to mess up. Um, and I wanted to do the best job I could. Um, and so I think that manuals provided a structure for me and that's kind of like a personality thing, but related to that rehab experience, you know, I did like very traditional, like halfway house, like all of that kind of stuff, you know? And so that's pretty focused on the disease model and Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and all that. But I had a, a counselor who was an MSW in training and um, she did uh, Ellis's rational emotive behavior therapy with me. And she had me like tracking my high risk situations and thinking about my rational thoughts. And I, and I, I'm making a motion toward like an index card, right? Cause I was like writing things down on an index card. And all I know is that I loved, <laughs> I loved it. So I guess the point there is that that was also like something that attracted me to like cognitive behavioral approaches in particular, that for my personality and my sort of need to intellectualize that, like, that was something that I definitely gravitated towards. Mm. So that's probably three different reasons mm. um, that, yeah. And, you know, pros and cons I think that we've sort of talked about them, right? The pros are our evidence-based practice, which certainly has value. Um, and the cons are um, an over-reliance that might be a mismatch in the moment. So, you know, there were definitely some clients where that, that cognitive behavioral manual, match manual worked very well. Um, but it was... It was, you know, there were others that it didn't. And, you know, the interesting line of demarcation was actually um, folks who are still using versus folks who are in early recovery, because I worked um, with both and I did a much better job with people in early recovery. Mm. Oh, I had a hard time with people who are still using because at that stage in my life and that stage in my career, I thought that I could reason them into not using so, so there's more than one way to achieve these outcomes that, that RET was very powerful for you in your own journey and that, but the, uh, we're, today we're talking about motivation, we've also talked about CBT and so there's lots of different ways of helping people and I love the right. metaphor you're using of the idea of the mechanics of helping and I wonder that... Um, if it's appropriate to ask you that, you know, given the fact that you've opened the, the hood on a number of these uh, approaches, I'm just wondering when you look at this therapeutic engine uh, or these therapeutic engines that you've looked at, you know, what is it you're noticing that makes all these engines the same? And what is it about the MI engine that makes it different um, that, that the, our audience can, can recognize? I have to back up on your question just a little. Okay which is to just say like, why do we do this? Right. Why do we look into the engine? Why do we care? 
right? Yeah. And a couple of reasons why we care are that, you know, typically, you know, that, that study project match, those were three evidence-based treatments with three very different explanations for how change occurred and they all, and they worked equally well. And so therefore one explanation didn't win. And so there wasn't an answer, right? There's potentially multiple answers or the explanations are just plain wrong, right? So if we had evidence-based treatments that worked a hundred percent well for a hundred percent of the people, we wouldn't care how they work. We just care about how to train them and how to get them into the community right now. But because that isn't the case, we need to understand more, right? So because understanding the mechanics helps us to potentially develop, you know, the best integrative treatment, if that's possible. It helps us to understand core processes that maybe every therapist should know. Those would be the two, you know, those, those would probably be the two main points. But so, so I'm certainly of the belief that different therapies share processes. Um, so things like empathy, things like exploration, things like information. Um, so people are learning things. Uh, people are having emotional experiences with another human being. So it's in, a, it's in an interpersonal context. There's that human connection. There's the installation of hope. You know, those types of things are going to be common, right, across therapies and very powerful. Probably, you know, if I had to guess 60% of, you know, the variance in outcome or something like that. And then, you know, a key way in, in, in which a lot of these therapies differ is it has to do with what I call content, right? So it's not, it's, it's what you talk about versus how you talk about it, right? So in cognitive behavioral therapy, there's a lot of content. In 12-step uh, facilitation slash Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, there's a lot of content. There's a lot of things to learn, um, and apply to one's own experience. There are exercises, um, there are, you know, there's homework, there's all sorts of things like that. But MI really is process, right? If we separate motivational interviewing from motivational enhancement therapy, which motivational enhancement therapy has some content, right? It has a few exercises that help structure the interaction. Um, but beyond that, you know, motivational interviewing is, is process. And, you know, the differences in that process are around this client-centered exploration, around this relational responding, empowerment, the guided, you know, the, the guided exploration that is differentially evoking certain types of verbalizations from the client, right? The change talk versus the sustained talk. You know, that's something that's very unique to motivational and appealing. You know, other people definitely would say that like good evidence-based cognitive, you know, good cognitive behavioral therapy is going to include a lot of those, those client-centered elements as well. Um, not necessarily the, the change shock, sustain talk thing, but yeah. So that was sort of a rambling answer, but I'll just leave it at that for now. Yeah. Well, it's a helpful distinction there to think about, process and content as, as two aspects of multiple therapies that have shown good outcomes and, and thinking about MI, which is very process heavy and little to no content. And, and I was even just thinking as you were talking Molly about what, what would be content that's, relevant to MI or if one, if one were doing it. And, and that doesn't mean, you know, in your specific area of practice, there may be content that you share about the effects of, you know, smoking or, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of diabetes and how that affects somebody's body and what they need to do to better care for themselves. That, that seems to be separate from MI. I mean, I suppose there could be some explanation about, change talk and sustain talk to the, to a client and like 
some kind of explanation of, you know, what we're trying to do in this conversation is to, is to hear more statements about you wanting to quit smoking and, and to soften the ones that are talking about continuing to smoke. But I, I've certainly never practiced in that way or never taught that. And I've never heard of anyone um, doing that. So yeah, it was just interesting to, to think about how you know, that distinction of process and content and how little content is, is, uh, is there. So maybe we can just continue to hear about your, your research, your, what you're, what you're discovering, what's some of the more recent projects that you've, you've done perhaps, or, or something that you're kind of, uh, excited, uh, that's, that's underway. And then with an eye towards, you know, the practitioners who are listening also who are like, what can I do this afternoon maybe to, to, you know, improve an outcome with a client that I'm seeing. So this interest in the the theories, this idea of psychotherapy equivalence, right? The idea that you can put, you know, take two evidence-based treatments and put them in a clinical trial and they might perform similarly well, even though they have a different explanation of change has always motivated me um, and motivated my research. And so the type of research I do is a type of research that's very um, active and lively in uh, the motivational interviewing literature. And, you know, it's called process research, right? And this is something that happens in, in general psychotherapy research as well. But, you know, it's the idea of, of looking at the interactions within the therapy sessions and thinking about the theoretical model of the treatment and seeing if you can put that theoretical model to an empirical test. And so, you know, with, with motivational interviewing, there's a lot going on, right? So maybe there isn't this content, although I would say feedback reports are probably as close as you get for, for content. And most therapists in practice are not doing personalized feedback reports. But if you're someone like me who deals in randomized clinical trials, then you're around personalized feedback reports all the time. <laughs> and they're awesome. <laughs> um, but you know, so the, the, so there's a lot going on, right? They talk about the techniques, the ors, right? Open-ended questions, simple and complex reflections, affirmation. They talk about the principles, empathy, self-efficacy, you know, developing discrepancy. Um, there's the processes, right? The different ways that you might uh, respond in a given portion of the session, right? Are you in the process, the portion of the session or the portion of the treatment where you're really all about engaging? Um, are you in the portion of the treatment where you're really all about like focusing in on a goal? Are you in the portion of the treatment where you're really about like planning to achieve that goal and then monitoring your progress? Um, so, you know, those are the different processes. And then there can be these, these, if you're in a clinical trial, you know, there, there can be these, these components, these things like, you know, we're going to talk about the pros and cons of the particular behavior, or we're going to explore your goals and values, right? And those are discussion topics. Um, so these are all things that can be tested as like, well, is this something that's effective or not effective? And so the thing that I've resonated toward and a lot of people have resonated toward have been these, these three hypotheses of the theoretical model of motivational interviewing. Right. The technical hypothesis. And this is comes from, you know, from a, a, a fabulous paper by Bill Miller and Gary Rose in 2009, um, an American psychologist. And there was and it actually is from a came. It was a preceding book chapter that had a third hypothesis. And, and, and that was with um, Hal Arkowitz. Um, but so the technical. So should I like go into these? Because I assume that. Yeah, OK, so. Um, so the technical hypothesis is really about those ors, right? It's about the therapist engaging in open-ended exploration that is guided exploration by skillful reflective listening. And the therapist is differentially responding to change versus sustained talk. Yes, we explore sustained talk, but we do it at certain times in the session and not in others. Um, and yes, we might soften it versus with change talk where, you know, we are looking to evoke it, evolve it and, um, you know, really kind of paint that that vivid picture 
right? And so what are change and sustained talk, right? Change talk, these are statements that are, you know, about making a change and a specified behavior, but there's different types, right? There can be commitment statements. I will do it. I won't do it, right? That or commitment statements for change talk would be, I will do it. Anti-commitment statements for sustained talk, I won't do it. They can be ability statements. They can be statements of reason. I will do it for my family. I will do it so I can be a better person. So those ors, that skill, those skillful use of ors should have an association with increases in change talk and decreases in sustained talk. And that is a, an empirical representation of changing motivation, right? Your, you know, your, there is a, a movement over the course of a session or over the course of multiple sessions where your arguments for change increase and your arguments against change decrease, right? And so that's the technical hypothesis. The relational hypothesis has to do with the MI relationship. It has to do with that, that empathy, that motivational interviewing spirit, right? Which is a combination of collaboration, respect for autonomy, evocation, right? So those, those relational aspects of motivational interviewing and how they may relate to the expression of change talk and sustained talk, but also how they may have just a direct impact on outcome, right? So we don't, you know, we can imagine that empathy is going to have its own unique effect beyond how it might interact with ORs, right? Because you can do open-ended questions, simple and complex reflections, affirmations, and you can do them very poorly. And you can't, and we wouldn't expect that then you would have the same effect than if you were doing those ORs in um, the context of, of a high skill set which is, you know, can be measured by those relational, those relational indicators, uh, the empathy, the MI spirit, and so on. So that's the relational hypothesis, right? That there's, there's a, a, a impact on change shock, and there's, a, there's also a direct effect on, um, on outcome. And then there's a the conflict resolution hypothesis, which is less talked about, um, but is in that Arkowitz, uh, I believe it's a book chapter, but that's really about, you know, that early definition of motivational interviewing, uh, which is a client-centered approach for the exploration and resolution of ambivalence. So conflict resolution in this sense has to do with resolving the inner conflict around the behavior in question. And again, you know, you can test that, right? Because that really is about the balance of change and sustained talk, right? Is a person, you know, is a person 50-50? They've got, you know, they've they're spent 50% of the session with change talk and 50% with sustained talk. Well, they, that sounds like they're perfectly ambivalent to me. And also, and then I'll stop, <laughs> but also... You know, the way we look at it now, particularly for conflict resolution, is we we use a longitudinal model, which means that we're we're actually looking at statements at specific time points within the session and we're looking for a growth process. Right. So we're really looking for we're looking for an empirical representation of growing change talk and declining sustained talk. And that you know, again, can be considered, we can think about that as a representation of conflict resolution. So therefore, where you start in the session and where you end up or where you start in the treatment and where you end up matters. And it also matter, matters like where you begin, right? Do you begin with a lot of change talk? Do you begin with a lot of sustained talk? So there's a real significance for everyone to recognize the ability to understand or 
people to recognise that the different sounds of change talk and sustained talk in any helping conversation, but in particular motivational interview. And, and what you've been describing is these three hypotheses give different reasons or offer different ways of testing what is it that the practitioner is doing that either creates change talk or softens sustained talk or in reverse causing causing uh, less change. And so it's about the technical, it's 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 the language, the tools, the skills that we use, the um, and then the relational aspect of of the of how I am as a human being with you. But also that it sounds then that the third one, that conflict resolution, that's that internal relationship that the individual has that's played out in the conversation between sustained talk and change talk within themselves about this behaviour. And, and, and I suppose with, with that then, uh, Molly, what is it that you're... What is it you're doing with this in relation to the, the research around motivational interview? And when you are looking at these three hypotheses, what is it you're identifying that uh, our audience can be uh, more interested? Like, like Seb says, you know, what what can it? What if anything might you be pointing out? If you think about this, this may in itself be helpful for you when you go back into practice today. Well, one of the the funny things about research is that we often tell you what you already knew, mm-hmm. but it's very important still <laughs> because what if you're wrong? Right. And if we, and if we really, you know, kind of take something that is an assumption and we validate it in a way that it is then transportable information that can be used for training. So I'm sort of, defending myself before I start telling you what the research has said, because you'll be like, yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> but so, you know, they, these things have been supported, right? And there also have been some surprises. So those ores matter. And if you compare, and this is a, this was a study uh, by Terry Moyers, um, that like you can actually and actually uh, predating that was a was a study uh, with by Bill Miller where you could actually experimentally manipulate the behavior of the therapist or they did experimentally manipulate the behavior of the therapist and could demonstrate that that had a differential impact on how the client responded if the therapist is more uh, directive confrontational um, less relational the client shuts down, the client says less, becomes resistant, may kind of push back. Those are things that are empirically supported, right? So this idea of saying, you know, it's important to be client-centered and to, you know, have this evocative yet yet directional approach or guiding approach, right? Because we're not just talking in circles. We do have a certain direction that we move in. That matters and that that works, you know, that works in terms of um, and it, and the research shows that it also works particularly for certain people. Right. So the more kind of defensive or resistant, you know, and I'm going to use air quotes for that because I'm not a fan of a lot of those types of labels, but they've been kicking around for a while. And so the measures that are used for, you know you know, like psychological reactants, like a construct like that, a person who is, who might be like kind of prone to, to defending themselves or pushing against authority. A person like that is going to especially benefit from motivational interviewing. And, you know, and it also, we can also think about where people at are at in terms of their motivation, where they start matters. Are they totally motivated? If they are, then Planning is probably where you need to go as opposed to um, exploring more. In terms of change and sustained talk, you know, these variables do predict outcome, but often sustained talk can be a more powerful predictor. And, you know, when you think about it, it makes sense, right? Because, like, what does it take to say to a therapist, no, I'm not going to do it? And what's the difference between saying, no, I'm not going to do it and saying, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. There's a lot more wrapped up in I'm going to do it. Right. 
there's wishful thinking. There is social desirability. I want to please you. I want to get, I want to, I want to end the session easily. There's your treatment history, right? So many of us clinicians, we know there's also like, and I'll try not to complicate the picture too much, but like, we also can think about like the sweet spot for motivational interviewing, right? Because we can ask ourselves, okay, what are we talking about when we're talking about motivational interviewing? Are we talking about a therapeutic style that helps us to connect people and explore change? That's one, that's one motivational interviewing. Another motivational interviewing is a very specific modality that you deliver to certain types of people. And so, you know, point being that when you do motivational, so when you do that latter motivational interviewing, that you know, we're going to do like a one shot session in a, you know, in a, in a, uh, an emergency department or in, you know, a, a medical setting or something like that. And you're talking to a person with very severe substance use disorder and a very extensive treatment history. They're going, you're going to get a lot of change talk. Is that change talk going to predict their outcome? Not necessarily. Right. Because that person has resource issues and that person has just severity. Right. And so it's to say that, you know, that the data do show that, that change talk is a less reliable predictor of outcome than sustained talk um, in, you know, in some studies and that all in that, if you actually combine them to think about it as a measure of ambivalence, that it is a good predictor, but what is important is to always step back and think about who are we talking about here? Where is this person at? Because you can, you know, any clinician can, can recognize that, you know, your change talk is not, not my change talk. Cause it really depends on, on who you're talking to, what it means. Right. And so, and the last thing I'll just say is just that like, okay, so when is it like ideal? I think a contemplate pre-contemplative, but movable and contemplative person, a person with lower severity, you know, things like that, where you're going to get a really good um, sort of representation of, 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 of language changing language being sufficient to change the mind. <laughs> no, I, just that, even that last phrase is making me language that is sufficient to change the mind. Yeah. So if, yeah, go ahead. Clarify that statement. If yeah. we're going to call motivational interviewing, a motivational interview, an interview that affects motivation, then how does that happen? Um, it happens through the differential evocation and reinforcement of change talk over sustained talk. That model assumes that the verbalization, that thinking about those things and verbalizing those things changes a person's mind. Mm. Um, and that's true. And I think what I'm saying is it's true. I think it's true. I think the data supports that, but not for everybody. That's the short story. Yeah. Right. And well, I think a couple of things that are, are important to, to hear and to rehear perhaps, and to relearn for people. One is um, something that may seem a bit counterintuitive, uh, at least in, in some of the training situations that I've been a part of that, that actually MI is particularly helpful for clients that seem more, and I'm going to use air quotes, resistant or who are, uh, who are really not interested in change, at least in, in their early presentation and work with you, that actually MI is quite, is particularly helpful in working with those clients. Um, and, um, and, and I guess this other part of the story, which, which is quite, quite valuable, which is, and maybe, maybe one way of saying this is one of the more powerful elements of MI isn't so much whether or not someone is, uh, whether a client er, is making change talk statements, it's that they're not making sustained talk statements and that 
it's like, you know, engaging in behavior in, in conversation with a client that doesn't generate them to have overt, you know, to use language that is overtly pushing against change, that, that, that is, that's something that's kind of valuable in some ways. It's like the other side of the change talk coin and we, but we can be really oriented towards change talk and that's that maybe that's important, but maybe one of the reasons why that's so important is because someone's not making sustained talk statements. Is that, am I understanding that conclusion more or less correctly? Yeah, absolutely. That I, Oh, I, it's, it's always helpful to me to think about it as a balance, you know, as tipping, tipping a balance. Um, and also, you know, where, where you are in the course of the session and where you are in the, in the course of the treatment. Yeah. Right. One thing that just to kind of follow up on this idea of severity though, is that when I think about, I, I think with the severity and I, and, and you know what I'm saying? Like, well, there, you know, with someone who has a lot of change shock, who also has like high severity, like if they have like their, their life has been devastated by their, by the use of a particular drug. I think about like, say, you know, people with opioid use disorders, right. Who, you know, they can lose a lot. Um, and so they can have a lot of change talk and, and that might not necessarily, you know, predict their, their, their outcomes. But I also, when I think about them, I think, I also think about the relational hypothesis and think about the idea that with folks with greater severity, it's not to say that they wouldn't benefit from MI. It's more to say that it would probably going to take longer. Um, They're going to need other things besides MI. Um, but will they benefit from that human connection and that respect mm. 100% and will that potentially, you know, impact their outcome being, you know, being treated as a human again? Um, yeah, I think that can be very healing. You know, so I think about like the idea of like harm reduction programs in the community where they're not, you know, they're not trying to get people into treatment. They're just trying to like, give them a clean needle and in a, and a warm human interaction. And if they want to discuss treatment, you know, we've, we've got resources, but you know, the, the power of that, of that human connection and that human treatment is, is very important. Yeah, that I guess that helps me understand the the what you were mentioning on that idea that the the evidence of the effectiveness has has been witnessed in practices. First of all, one of the things for us as practitioners to to consider is is um, how much sustained talk is the client using, or even more specifically. How, how much is the client speaking during a session? And one of the things to monitor as a practitioner is, do you notice that the client speaks more or less from the point, from the beginning towards the end of the session? Because chances are, if you're noticing them speaking less as the session goes on, then they're stepping back or they don't feel connected to that, that relational piece may be missing or that you're not using your uh, technical uh, tools or uh, approach. And that's the evidence you need, you could consider Consider changing what you're doing. Whereas if they're speaking more and more than chances are, that in itself is a positive thing. Obviously, you'll have to measure just how much of it's sustained talk versus for change talk, but just how often someone speaks during your session is something to be aware of. But then that, again, back to that importance, I suppose, at the heart of most of what we talk about motivation viewing, which is that spirit, that relational aspect of, you know, again, it's back to simply being a kind, loving human being to another human being in itself can be very helpful no matter what else you do next, no matter what else you're saying. It's simply meeting somebody where they're at can be very, very powerful. And that's something else for us just to keep remembering and as practitioners that as we're developing our skillfulness and practice of motivation or any other approach is to maintain that humanness in what it is we're doing and and just to remember who you're with and to recognize again back that idea of the behavioral markers and the context of the situation that the client finds themselves in. They may be saying lots of really significant things as far as change talk is concerned, but put it in the context of what's going on in this person's life and what is it what else does you notice in that help you then do 
in relation to helping. And that may include you recognising that this isn't just an MI, it isn't going to be just MI that you do, but you can maintain the spirit of MI and, and other aspects of, of what it is that this person will find helpful in uh, in the time that they have with you. And given, given the issue of time, I'm just conscious of our own time, Molly, I'm just wondering what else... On your journey through the, the, the looking underneath the bonnet or the hood of motivation interviewing that you've discovered that people may benefit from hearing as we come as we come towards the end of today's session. I I like to talk about the in my mind the two the two gifts of of motivational interviewing which are in my in my mind in my opinion. Teaching us how to be nice. Actually, I have to add, I have to make it three. And this has been a recent thing that I've heard other people say that I really like. So teaching us to be nice to people. Teaching us to be present, right? So that's the second thing that like is, is some, is, is different, different than being nice. Um, but it's it sort of, it's, it's close to it, but it deserves its own category, I think, because it's actually increasingly, the more I think about it, the more powerful I realize that is. Um, and teaching us how to train therapists. And so, you know, I think a lot about like, how do we get evidence-based treatments out into the hands of people who need them, you know, out into the community? And why has motivational interviewing been you know, arguably more successful in dissemination and implementation of the method than maybe like a cognitive behavioral relapse prevention or um, another, you know, type of treatment. And it has to do with the process element and the way that the, the treatment has been operationalized, the way it has been broken down into those mechanics so well that people can train it, they can replicate it, they can monitor it to, to assess whether it's being done skillfully versus not skillfully. And, you know, the message I have for therapists is like record your sessions and listen to your sessions and have communities of practice where you might decode your sessions, you know, the motivational interviewing treatment integrity scale um, or, you know, opening yourself up to hearing what you do, thinking about what you do, and letting other people kind of measure and assess what you do um, is a, just a tremendous skill-building exercise. It really makes a difference. And, you know, a lot of clinicians can be averse to it, but it, it, it's a, an exposure therapy thing. Like, once you do it, it's not that big of a deal. It's just a matter of getting over that initial hump of hearing your own voice on a recording, seeing your own face on a recording, of getting that feedback. So, yeah, that, you know, that is a tremendous contribution to the field. And one that in my most recent work, you know, I'm very focused on taking, you know, those training methods and trying to apply them to other things. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to take away the content and seeing like, okay, the content is a barrier to implementation. If you tell a therapist she has to talk about or they have to talk about uh, high-risk situations in the third session, the therapist is going to tune you out and say that is not realistic to my world. But if you talk to a therapist about, you know, what – should homework conversations look like or how can you deliver information, which all of you have to do in a way that is going to be the most engaging and empowering to the person sitting in front of you. Um, those are things that are totally trainable. And those are things that, you know, so that's all about process. That's taking the process away from the content and um, you and borrowing from those training methods that are so well developed in the MI field and applying them to other things. Mm. So, you know, for example, I've, I'm working through like different topics. So a topic on uh, goal setting, a topic on psych, you know, providing information, a topic on skills training. So, you know, a lot of therapists do skills training. What they, tr what skills they train, I don't care. 
but how do they train the skills? I'm interested in, in, you know, measuring that and, and, and coaching that. So hopefully that answers the question, but that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm focused on these days. Well, and it's the, the idea of the three gifts is quite lovely. Uh, um, and I, I'm sure Steve Rolnick would be smiling if he heard them because they're, they're quite simple and jargonless, right? Just be nice uh, and to be present, which, you know, maybe maybe both are easier said than done in, in certain contexts. Mm. But then, uh, you know, the idea that MI, one of the gifts of MI is it's helped inform how to train uh, therapists and other healthcare providers in more effective ways, focusing on the process, focusing on actually uh, the process of evoking that we, we think about in clinical contexts, that this is something that you feel is quite powerful in a training context that rather than telling people how to do something at first, explore with them, how is it that they relay information in effective and powerful ways as, as that being the starting point. Um, so yeah, really um, lovely reminders. Well, Molly, we're, uh, we are, as Glenn mentioned, we're uh, approaching the end of our conversation today. And, and what we do towards the end is we, we do a, a, maybe a big pivot, maybe a slight pivot. It depends on, on what you, you have uh, in mind here, but we're always curious to know what people have on the horizon, be it professional or, or maybe something that's more in, in, in the personal realm that it's really catching your attention that you might share with us. Earlier, I, I said, I shared like the story of my father and, and, and shared my own experience in recovery. And that's something that is on my horizon these days as a, as a scientist. Um, it's something that I rarely have talked about and is something that is changing in our society where that has led me to sort of question and ask more and more like, how much of this story should I be telling and what context should I tell this story? And does it really matter to people? Does it, you know, does it really matter to me? What, why does it matter? Um, how does it matter? And so, yeah. So today was like a total experiment. <laughs> this is the first time in a podcast that I've been like, I'm in recovery. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm playing around with that in, in my sort of head and heart of like sort of how to do that, when to do it and you know, how it may be, you know, helpful or harmful. I'm not quite sure. Um, I just, as a quick antidote, I was looking at a scientific journal um, for, for different reason. And they had a call for papers on, on lived experiences. And I was like, Oh wow. Like they, this journal wants to hear my story potentially mine or anyone else's, you know? And then it's kind of like, Hmm, I wonder if I should tell it. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, that's the, that's the, the thing that's been, it's been a few years that I've been puzzling this or probably forever, but it seems to be like growing the, the more like the, the sort of ambivalence and, and thinking around it. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, I appreciate your courage and because it fits back into, you know, what I noticed at the very beginning is, is it your own awareness of your own process and your willingness to, I guess, stretch yourself to be the best version of yourself and even allowing yourself to experiment with that here today. So well, thank you for that. And, and I guess there's an awful lot of people out there who will identify with you, Molly, because, you know, it is such a, um, a, a truth of, of so for so many of us, you know, we all have our own stories to tell, and I think what it does is it uh, maybe it takes some of the pretense and veneer of what it is to be a therapist that you can have lived experience yourself, and it's just about having lived experience in itself is, is interesting, but it can also be of benefit to other people. And as as you've been describing throughout the podcast, is it's about how do we make the decisions about what we do, what we share, what, how we are with people with the understanding that it's been informed by how will this be helpful to other people? And the, and I guess it, it sounds like that's part of what you're experimenting with. And, and even hearing that, you know, the academic world is exploring that too, going, you know what, maybe, maybe we should allow people to feel much freer to be themselves and to recognize, you know, we've, got, we've all got warts and, uh, we don't have to pretend that we don't, um, to be, to be good enough. So thank you for that. And so 
we often ask our guests at the end of this, uh, at the end of a session or at the end of the recording, Molly, is, is if there are people out there listening and, and they are interested in anything that you've talked about today, if they can reach out to you and ask questions or comment, would that be okay? And if it is, how, how would they do that? Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I want my, my science to, to reach people. Hmm. I really do. And I, I'm happy to have myself reach people. Um, so yes, I, I absolutely am open to that. And so mine, and so I guess I'll just spell out my email. Is that right? Yeah. So Molly with a Y M O L L Y (laughs) underscore McGill and it's M A G I L L. And then it's at Brown, like the color or the university dot edu. And it's easy to just Google me too. I think if you just like say like my name plus Brown University. Fantastic. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear from people. Excellent. And do you use any social media platforms or anything like that, that people can find you too or no? I don't, I probably should, but, uh, but I haven't crossed that technological bridge as of yet. Well, well, we haven't, and, 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 and for that reason, if people are interested in staying in touch with ourselves, they can do that through Twitter at Change Talking. On Instagram, it's Talking to Change Podcast. On Facebook, it's Talking to Change. And any emails in relation to questions that people have or interest in training, it's podcast at glenhines.com. Well, Molly, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and and uh, and certainly the the personal parts of yourself that you're experiment, experimenting with in terms of how you share those. So uh, we're we're very uh, fortunate to have had this time with you today. So thank you. Thanks. It was great. It was great to talk. Thanks, Molly. Thanks, All everybody. Right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.